Greetings and salutations, David. <laughs> Hello, Graham. It's good why, to talk to you. Uh, you. You as well. Why should you never iron a four-leaf clover? It's bad luck. No, you don't want to press your luck. Hmm. Yeah, pretty good. Yeah. If if I, you were close, I was scared. I got a little bit scared. I, I said, the, like, I oh, said no. the word luck, but that's like not that difficult yeah, it's, because it's it's connected. But it's yeah, wrong, right. you know. Yeah, it's still right. wrong. Like it's if very, you made a joke about Michael Jordan and I said something about a basketball, that'd be like you know, yeah. it's low hanging fruit part of the joke. I would say it's you got that very wrong, and this joke is a ten. So why don't you just can do you yours? Can you say it again? Uh, you should. Why should you never uh, uh, iron a four leaf clover? Because you don't want to press your luck. Okay. Because you don't want to press yeah. your luck. You know what? Out of the magnanimity of my heart, I'm going to set a record here and give that a seven. Whoa. A seven. That, that one's a seven. All right. End the episode here, Logan. Put that wrap up music <laughs> nope, in. Nope, nope, I got a joke too. Okay. I got a joke too. Graham, what did the banana say to the dog? Uh, what? I don't know. Nothing. Bananas can't talk. <sighs> That's one of those jokes. Yeah, right. It's one of those jokes that makes the person you're telling the joke to feel really silly for asking no what what did the banana say <laughs> oh he just said nothing so since you made me feel bad i'm giving that a three. Oh, come on thanks for the seven you know what enough of the nonsense let's get on with the nonsense welcome back to withy windle a whimsical interactive show for kids who love stories words and grown-worthy jokes and featuring your favorite authors and illustrators it's part book club part game show it's your weekly adventure through the wild word wild world of wordplay wow i screwed that up entirely but i'm david kern and i'm graham Pittman. and that it was a lot of words that began with w so i know but this is like the sixth episode you think i'd have it down by now no no you get a grace period oh, i think you thank like you. the first 200 episodes the first two i get how many how many mess ups do i get in those 200 episodes as many though? as you want after oh. that straight to prison oh. <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, oh boy okay yep well i've got 100 and i've got like 194 more episodes to screw up and then my life is on the line yes i think that's fair graham we have a great show today Oh, yes, we do. We have a guest coming up, Mary Rose Wood. She mm-hmm. wrote The Incorrigible Children of Ashton Place, and we're going to tell you a little bit more about her coming up in a little bit. We're also going to be talking about, what's the book we're reading again? The Railway Children. That's right. And we're going to talk about which You're chapters. You're forgetting everything. I know. You know, it, it's getting late. It's... Uh, Oh, no. What chapters? Uh, t- uh, nine and ten? That, that's right. Okay. You jogged my memory. <laughs> nine and ten. So we're going to hear from Mary Rose Wood. We're going to talk about The Railway Children. We're going to have conversations... Um, about all kinds of nonsense, as usual. We're going to talk about riddles. We're going to... Do you talk about riddles? Do you tell a riddle? You you need to go home. Do you want me to take this show over by myself? <laughs> I'm ready. Should we start over? <laughs> no, let's go. So we're going to have so riddles. Rid- yeah, there's going to be riddle time. There's going to be snack time. Yep. But speaking of snack time, we have our very first ever what, Graham? Sponsor. We have our very first sponsor. Your fake ad reads. Yes. Worked. Is it they, Frank? They did. The, Frank told us he'd have to let us know about season two. Yeah, that's typical Frank. I know. Pushing the ball down I know. the road. He's pressing his luck. He's pressing his luck with us. Yeah, he's pressing his luck. What does this have to do with snacks? Well, because we used to do ad reads basically for snacks. Oh, oh, yes. Yeah. 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 Okay. The Twizzlers yeah. one. But this sponsor is not a snack. And it's not fake. Company. That's true. It's, it's very real, real. It's very real. And it's a, it's a company for people who are interested in in homeschooling yes but they don't necessarily know where to start with homeschooling this is a company called 
uh, Classical Conversations. Did you know, Graham, that for the last 23 years and in over 47 countries, Classical Conversations has been equipping parents like you or mm-hmm. like me or who, anybody who wants to homeschool, such as maybe many of the parents of the kids who are listening to this podcast, with the tools and confidence to teach their kids at home, training them to succeed in today's changing world. Did you say 47 countries? I said 47 countries. I thought there was like 20 countries in the world. No, I believe... Did they create more countries? <laughs> just to, just and, to, to do more homeschooling in? Yeah. Well, I can't vouch for whether they have created new countries. It just says here 47 countries. But I can tell you that I think there's 189 countries in the world. Oh, really? Something like that. 180 something or other. I actually thought there was like 200 and something. I was just being I'm pretty silly. sure it's 180 something. But some okay. kid's going to look that up yes. in the encyclopedia. Tell us that answer. Yes, and tell us exactly how and many. And if you, if you give us the right answer, you win um, uh, the feeling of a job well done. <laughs> That's right. We'll do this. Yes. But... Classical Conversations Proven Model can connect you, well, probably your parents, with a local Christian community so that you can be encouraged, inspired, and equipped in your homeschool journey. Learn why Classical Conversations is the world's leader in home education and sign up for a free online info meeting. Do you like free stuff? Always. This is a free info meeting. Yes. Online. You don't even have to leave your house. I love it. Like you could sit on your couch and watch this info meeting. It's the best way. Would you like to know how you could learn to do this? Please tell me. They gave us a special link and it's got our name in it. No, really? They did, yeah. So it's classicalconversations.com slash withywindle. I've always wanted one of those links. We have our own link. Say it again. Classicalconversations.com slash withywindle. Slash withywindle. That's right. So if you're a family that is interested in learning more about homeschooling, you know, maybe your parents have thought about it, or maybe you're like one of those kids who is begging their parents to homeschool because I know a couple of those kids and the parents are waffling. <laughs> maybe then <laughs> Classical Conversations can help out. So again, check out classicalconversations.com slash withywindle because after all, that is 47 countries and 23 years. Yeah. That's a pretty big deal. And you probably live in one of those countries that's, if you're listening. That's, that's right. Probably. It's very, that's probably very true. So thank you to Classical Conversations for, for stepping up and offering us sponsorship and offering us... A very real sponsorship, not a fake one. There's yeah. a real ad read, not a fake ad. We're going to get real ad reads now, but we'll also still do some fake ones. Right. Such but as, we'll let you know specifically which, which ones, ones are, are real and but which ones are fake. But you'll probably figure it out. Yeah, right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, 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 and speaking of which, let's talk about snacks. Yeah. Because we do have a few snacks here for, for the sixth episode of Withy Wendell. So, David... Um, I'm trying to lose weight, you know, I'm getting to Perks the Porter age. <laughs> I'm actually past that. And uh, my met- metabolism slowing down. Your what now? Metabolism. You know, the little... Your metabolism? Yeah. Do you know how to spell that? Yeah. I'm not going to prove anything to oh, anybody, that's but yes, I yeah. do. We, we all um, know you're a smart guy. But every time I come to do the podcast, we eat the worst food. I know. I mean, the best, the best. food. Right. But the worst for... Um, aging uh, podcasters to eat while they're sitting for a long period of time. Exactly. And today you brought like all my favorites and I'm just looking at them. I'm going to eat a little bit, but not a ton. So are you happy with me? Are you upset with me? I'm confused. I mean, I'm going to act upset, but I'm pretty happy. (laughs) (laughs) So, so we have some Sour Patch Kids, which are just Uh, honestly one of the best candies. Just little, yeah, heavenly. And then we've also got a candy bar here. Twix. Yeah. And you know what I like about Twix? Everything. You know what one specific thing is that I like about Twix? Uh, caramel and it, cookie and chocolate. It's great for when you're podcasting with your friend because it comes mm. in pieces. Oh, in pieces. It comes like we each have our yeah. own piece. And then, yeah, that's a good point. And then we have Pepperidge Farm Thin and Crispy 
toffee milk chocolate cookies. Lots of adjectives in that product. Yeah. <laughs> do you remember the old Pepperidge Farm commercials? None of these kids will, but do you remember them? Was it a fake ad read or a real one? No, these were real ones. I do not. I do not remember that. They would always be like, do you remember? That was like their thing. It's like, (laughs) do you remember dinner (laughs) at Grandpappy's? (laughs) Pepperidge Farm remembers. And like all this like, you know, very wholesome like memory lane stuff. Yeah, yeah. Like our cookies will bring that memory back to you. You know, things like that. (laughs) I always thought those were funny. Do you remember? This one just says that they're buttery and rich. And we're going to find out if that's that's actually accurate tonight. I'm pretty sure it is. Well, Graham, now that we have accomplished snack time, now that we have given a preview of our smorgasbord of snacks here in front of us, that's a good word. It's time for, uh, what's the segment up next? Uh, mailbag. Do we have one that's worth sharing with our listeners? So today's uh, featured email comes from Colin, Elliot, Tristan, and Kieran. That's one name? Nope. It is not. That is four names. Oh, it's four different people. Four different people. Can you say that again? Colin, Elliot, Colin, Tristan. Elliot, Tristan, and Kieran. Okay. They sent in a riddle answer for one of the past riddles. Okay. Uh, they gave us a suggestion of an author to interview. That was really nice. We love we love hearing that. Yeah, that's always uh, very helpful. They say we love Withy Windle, and our mom does too. Great. You know, all good stuff. But then they elevate the email because Elliot sent in two jokes for us oh boy all right all right so we're gonna have double joke time bonus bonus time bonus jokes all right okay so these are from elliot what do skeletons do all winter they die (laughs) bernate all right here's the second one they die bernate what makes a skunk spray you when it's scared it's instinct it's instinct. It's instinct. <laughs> Divernate and instinct. Yeah, mm. their jokes. I'd yeah. say those are better than every single one we've done so far. So good job, yeah. Elliot. Elliot is nine years old. Good job, Elliot. And he's doing better than we are. Good job. Yeah. Well, we'd love to hear from you. So if you want to be a featured email here on Withy Wendell, you can email us. And Graham, where can people email us? Podcasts at goldberrybooks.com. Podcasts at goldberrybooks.com. Yep. It's a good thing you remember that. Email us and send us pictures of our word machine That's that right. you've drawn because you will win a prize, potentially, if you are chosen. At the end of the season, we will be choosing a winner. Well, by which Graham means, from all the people who submit pictures, yes. we're going to choose winners from different age groups, and you're going to win a book. You keep ch- different age groups, even. Well, wow. I said that already. Okay. I said that last week. Probably right. Yeah. I mean, I just feel like that's fair because like if a seven-year-old is going up against a 13-year-old, that doesn't seem like it's fair. Okay. Yeah. Because what if that seven-year-old's really good and the 13-year-old gets beat? (laughs) (laughs) Yes. You're right. Okay. It just seems fair. Yeah, this is good. It seems fair. So yeah, we're going to give away some books to some people. So make sure that you send us a picture of the word machine that is always broken. And you are going to learn more about that word machine here in a little bit when we talk to Mary Rose Wood. But first, it is time to talk about E. Nesbitt's The Railway Children, chapters 9 and 10. So that segment is coming up next. Graham, as we start our conversation of The Railway Children, I have a question for you. Yes. Do you like cliffhangers? Oh, uh, interesting. I haven't really thought about that. Do I like them? I'm not opposed to them. Do you think we should define what a cliffhanger is while we're at it? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, what is a cliffhanger? You don't, you don't, you don't know? It's somebody hanging on a cliff. <laughs> That's right. So in a book or a movie, I mean, everybody here is probably 
you know, experience what it's like to run up against a cliffhanger in a, in a story. Mm-hmm. It's when something big happens and right when you think you're going to find out the resolution to that big thing or uh, a mystery is going to oh, be solved yes, or something yes. like There's that. There's a break. There's a break. Yeah. And you have to wait. Yeah. And that happens at the end of this section. Yes, it does. Okay. So like this, I like this because I can, I can decide mm-hmm. to turn the page and keep, and keep going, reading, yeah. which a good cliffhanger makes you want to do that. Hmm. But if it's a season, a whole season of TV, um, and you got to wait and a you got to wait a year yeah. to have that cliffhanger resolved. Yeah. I'm opposed to that. Or <laughs> let's say episode nine of with And after, you know, after the season's right about to end and we're going to take a break before the next season, we leave a cliffhanger there. Like that, the, the bookstore trolls kidnapped us and, um, what, oh no, what's going to happen. And then we make people wait two months, uh, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Or right in the middle of the joke. <laughs> don't give the answer to the riddle at the end of the episode. And, and, until the next episode. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah, those aren't good. But I like this. That's not very fair. I like this cliffhanger because there is a cliffhanger yeah. at the end of the second cha- of what chapter? Chapter 10, 10 yeah. Uh, chapter 10, yeah. So in 9 and 10, we get various additional hijinks. I feel like that's a great word for this book. There's uh, Perks the Porter has a birthday. 32nd 32nd birthday he's younger than us and yeah they the kids try to do something nice for him and he doesn't yeah he doesn't totally appreciate it at first until he realizes that what's really happening is that everybody in the community is coming together to show how much they respect him and then you know his pride softens a little bit and he accepts the gifts and is grateful do you think okay so his reaction like they've they've kind of explained already throughout this book that like giving people charity or giving people things that they even need like Mm -hmm. medicine, things like that, like asking for it seems to be kind of problematic for the people's pride. Mm. Would you say that's fair? That do I think that's what's happening in the book? In the book. Yeah. Like so it's interesting. So they've already kind of built that up and then it happens again with Perks's birthday where he's um, irate. Like he's angry about this, that people are giving him gifts. Do you think that's a product of, uh, when this book was written a hundred years ago, different mindset. I was trying to think like if somebody throws me a surprise birthday party, I'm not going to have the same reaction perks did where he's basically saying, take all the gifts back and get out of my house and, you know, stomping around and even humps again, does another humph. Um, <laughs> harumph. Like, like it's interesting. People um, who are 32 should not be harumphing. Yeah. Another, see, yeah, he might be fudging his age a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> just really by his 42. actions and his yeah. <laughs> curmudgeonliness. Yeah. You know, I was, I was thinking how at the end of the chapter, she says something about how there's a difference between charity and kind heartedness. And I was wondering where you think that difference is, because it might be that that difference is, it might answer your question there about, about pride even a yeah, little bit. It's a good question. Um, like they're doing something kind for him because they respect him and it's his birthday, not because he needs, um, yeah, they don't feel sorry for him, you know, hot cross buns or whatever they give him. Yeah. But even if they felt sorry for him or he actually did need something, I feel like charity is, is, it feels like it's something they won't accept. And so, but it feels like the right thing to do for other people to try to give it to people. So it's like this, this tension. So let's say you knew that I needed help. Yeah. And I mean, we're good friends. So maybe let's just imagine. Well, let's not say good. I mean, we're friends. Yeah. So so let's imagine everything is exactly how it is now. And, and I need help. And you know that I'm not going to 
feel great about it if I feel like you're giving me charity and you're, but, to, but you're helping me out and you feel convicted that you should help me out. Yeah. Do you think that the right thing to do would be to just tell me to suck it up and n- not be prideful and do the nice thing for me anyway, or yes. to respect the fact that I would be no offended? I would not respect the fact that you'd be offended. I, I don't think. Um, you think the right thing to do is just help the person, even if their pride. Yeah. Even yeah. if Perks the Porter yells at you. It makes yeah. you feel bad. Then and then, like the kids do, they make a defense. They say, yeah. "No, this is what we're doing, and this is why." And we thought we were doing a nice thing, and we will still be your friend, even if you're nasty to us. I do like that. Um, was it Bobby had the foresight to write down the different things that people yeah. said? Uh, you know, because she thought it's almost like she was making a card for him, like allowing everybody in the town to sign a little card that says, "This is why we like you. Thank you for being a part of our lives." Yeah, it's pretty wonderful. Um, so, but can we go back to that question that I just asked? Because what is the difference between, what's the difference between charity and kind heartedness? Because the narrator calls at the end of chapter nine, our author calls what they did kind heartedness. That's a hard question. The line between those things could shift around, Hmm. but I mean, charity feels like somebody has a need and kind hearted. They might still have a need, but you're just doing it. Um, maybe for a different motive like they're not doing it because they feel perks um is destitute or or needs these presents they're doing it to show him affection yeah but affection exists in charity too so it's interesting although anybody you know sometimes charity is something that's like someone who is better off than you does it because they yeah. can feel sorry for you or at least that's the way it can feel like mm-hmm. if if someone who has more stuff or more money than you does something to help you when you're in kind of in a bad place, then that can be difficult to, to accept. Yeah. Especially if you feel like you're working very hard and you know, even maybe you're not getting paid the amount you feel like you should or whatever. Perks has a lot of pride in what he does. So he doesn't want people to think he, he needs all these things. Mm. So he's kind of got some guards up already Hmm. and even though they're children he is still his his guard is so high that he's even kind of snapping at them and Hmm. making them cry which you know (laughs) they're they're just trying to do something nice and have you ever had that happen where you try to do something nice no i don't tend to do nice things Uh, (laughs) i can have i ever done something nice and had it backfire or just had the people not appreciate it you ask me these questions and they're very good but my memory is not this good um, so no i don't remember this you don't remember any times when you've done something nice and and, and it's you just, you just put it out of your head you didn't want to you didn't want to live, so. live through that again i just love when the it says that mrs perks goes to the clergyman and she says to him it was friendliness wasn't it sir and then he says i think it was it was what is sometimes called loving kindness yeah and so sometimes I like that part of their adventures in this book is sort of just simple acts of loving kindness for someone they care about. They've done these big courageous things, but then we get a whole chapter dedicated to them just trying to do something nice for someone they love. I think that's pretty cool. Mm-hmm. But that brings us to 10 then. And in 10, we get our cliffhanger at the end of it. And we also get the bicker leading to the okay the foot stabbing. <laughs> Hold on. Okay. Something in chapter nine we have to talk about. Oh, okay. Similar to chapter one or two or whatever it was with the pigeon pie. Okay. <laughs> okay. There is a, they make a list of things they've been given. Yes. Right? Yes. And it, and it uh, itemized list. So yes. it, it lists them here for us. Okay. 
a tobacco pipe from the sweet shop, half a pound of tea from the grocers, a scarf from, uh, you know, someone else, a stuffed squirrel from the doctor. Okay. A, like taxidermy. A, from the doctor. So he's a doctor who does taxidermy. I don't see what the problem is. There's not a problem. It's just a question. What is the doctor doing with the stuffed squirrel and, and why... So what and why is this an, a, a gift that they think Perks will like? <laughs> the, that question is fascinating. Weren't the doctors back in the day, often the people who were known for like doing scientific experiments and stuff like that, they were the I person most likely to, you know, stuff a squirrel? Maybe. And then do what with it? Just have it around what? his doctor's office while, while he's doing surgery? Like, what, Well, you know what happening? taxidermy is, right? Yes. I mean... Stuff in a squirrel. You just look at it. <laughs> you just look at it. Yeah. So the doctors, this is just his hobby. He's a doctor slash taxidermist. Well, let's not assume that he does it every weekend. He just happens to have this one. <laughs> it was just, what a list. It's, it it like is great. A scarf. A shovel. A shovel. Some a pram. Tea, a stuffed squirrel from a doctor. <laughs> what? <Hold on>. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's very true. Oh, That's man. very true. I there's been a lot of times through this book that I've laughed and I'm not sure this might be an unintentional <laughs> time that it's funny. Like I don't, maybe she's not trying to make it funny, but I was like, what? Yeah. Maybe it's one of those things that in 1905, nobody would. Yeah. Like, Oh, what a kingly gift that is. At. Yeah. <laughs> but in 2021. I mean, I, I will, I will say that doctor's quite a brick for giving up his stuffed squirrel. Jolly good fella. Jolly good. Yeah. Which brings us to, 10 then because nope. still a nine you've got, you've got more okay there's a image in my copy which is probably in most people's copy of um perk supporter of of the three girls hugging oh yeah the, um the the old lady who was initially kind of uh, mrs ransom yeah she didn't want to give them stuff but then eventually did yeah if perks is 32 look at this look at this woman here is she 195 well no if she's 32 if he's 32 she's probably like 41 or 33 you're right <laughs> yeah. You're right. Anyway, okay, back to... She does, she does look like an old deer, as Phyllis yeah, said. She does look like an old deer. So chapter 10 is about the foot stabbing. Peter, the foot stabbing. Peter, <laughs> Peter gets his foot stabbed with a rake. Uh, this chapter... Following the bickering. Okay, so this chapter... I, I don't know if I want to be critical. It just seemed like... Like, it was kind of putting me to sleep a little bit. Like, there's not much happening until, like, the last couple lines. And I was like, oh, whoa. Okay, I'm back. I'm back. Um, he got stabbed in the foot. Yeah. I, yeah, but I I mean, do you feel like that at all? I know. I'm sure you do when you're reading certain books. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Sometimes I, you just feel like the book's trying to get somewhere. It's just kind of moving along lazily and not much going on in this, in well, this section. Well, you know how we talked last week about how about the idea of books being episodic and how this is kind of an episodic book? Yes. I think what's happening here is maybe we're getting a transition because we've had all these episodes, but we haven't had a lot that's tied to our sort of um, main plot about why they are where they are and what happened to the father. And I mentioned how that was kind of hovering over the story yes. and I couldn't wait. Yeah, to hear. yeah, you're right. And I'm so not, I think it's a transition into that because at the end of this, all of a sudden we're getting the father gets brought back into it and that's going to unravel the rest of the book. I yeah. suspect. And I'm not being particularly fair. I mean, at the beginning of this, it's Bobby and her mother talking about their father. And, and so, yeah, that, that's very important. Um, yeah. you know how they don't talk about their father much and their mother's realizing how, you know, 
kind of loving and kind the children are. Yeah. Actually, actually, it talks, I mean, <laughs> okay, here's a question. Do you find these children to be a little unbelievable? As in, their kindness seems to have no limits. And they're always kind of, well, no, okay, hold on. I'm, I'm going to contradict myself because like two pages later, they get in a big fight. <laughs> in which someone gets stabbed with a rake in the foot. But like, they're so thoughtful. Yeah. And they're so kind mm-hmm. and they're so clever about their kindness and all this stuff. And like when I was uh, their age, I was just, I was just stabbing people with rakes all the time. I was like, that was, <laughs> there my, was no kindness. Also. That was my baseline. <laughs> and then the kindness was sometimes, whereas they're reversed, you know, their kindness is their baseline. And then their stabbing is, you know, yeah, I think in some ways maybe they are a little bit unbelievable, but I think they're supposed to be characters who they're human in the sense that they sometimes fight yeah. and things go wrong and they get upset about things like anybody. Yeah, but and also, she, she does a good job showing us their emotions when they're yeah. going through them and yeah. trying to sort them out. Yes. But also they are very, I think she wants to create characters who are like, you know, you can emulate aspirational aspirational yeah wait those are two good words emulate and aspirational what do those words mean characters that you want to look up to and want Mm. to act like Mm. or she's presenting these as as characters that might have qualities that you should follow in their footsteps as it were yeah and it's possible that like they're not perfect no so we can look at them and say you know they're real they're real people but they also have really good characteristics that are worth trying to be like and i think the characters are wonderful and i think they're wonderfully drawn yeah it's just funny when i was thinking about like my childhood i was like oh no i was not this uh good (laughs) (laughs) and you listener probably weren't either but you should um you should take after bobby and phyllis and sometimes peter (laughs) (laughs) so at the end of this chapter though we get our cliffhanger and we find out it says she read end of the trial verdict sentence which was the newspaper headline. And it says the name of the man who had been tried was the name of her father. The verdict was guilty. And the sentence was five years penal servitude. So first of all, we got questions. What is penal servitude, Graham? Uh, well, that would be like hard labor. Like they're sentencing him to have to do whatever work. I guess the, the prison system in England makes him do that. Yeah. His prison was for five years, go work really hard for five years and not get paid. And then she says, it's not true. I don't believe it. You never did. Never, never. But then there's a hammering on the door and the story doesn't reveal to us what it is that he is supposed to have done when that he was guilty for. And we have to wait until chapter 11. Yeah. Which is a page away, but I stopped. Did you I stopped stop? too, because I mean, like, I feel like there's rules to this podcast. That's what I thought like, too. Yeah. We're on the same page. Literally well, that on the same that, page. That, 215. But that doesn't stop us from guessing. Mm. So what's your guess for what he is supposed to have done that Bobby now knows about, but we don't know about? You know what would be the best? Too much cookie. No. Train robber. (laughs) 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 Okay. It would be. That's guess number one. Um, Okay. You got a guess? Bookstore troll. Bookstore troll. No, probably not. Um, you think that's unlikely? I think it's unlikely that he transforms into a troll <laughs> bookstore. And I'm not sure that's criminal. 
either you know like that's true i mean if you just if you are a troll you just are a troll yeah yeah that's true and uh, the troll does nice things occasionally i mean make sure stuff gets done too let's I mean, let's give him credit that's true he's that's a hard true. taskmaster but you know it's true these podcasts don't record themselves uh what else i don't okay so real guess it's, is there a war going on? There's a war going on? There is definitely something war-like going on. I think it's probably related to that, but I don't have like a good actual guess. Maybe he smuggled something or some inf- something to do with information. Like, I don't, I don't yeah. know. Hmm. Those are good guesses, actually. I really don't know. I've no, Yeah, I'm interested that's, to find out. That's why it's a, it's a cliffhanger. And then we're going to... But then I hope he's, he's like... He's a the, yeah, Well, he's like, <laughs> he's like the most infamous train robber in england but then they probably wouldn't get to see him the he'll question i have oh, he'll bust oh, right, out okay the question i have is you whether he keep actually old. did what he's supposed to have done oh it doesn't seem like it. well i don't know she doesn't believe that he did but we're gonna i guess we're gonna find out but he wasn't surprised when they came for him i don't think if i, I can't remember all the way back to chapter one hmm. it's interesting well we'll find out next week okay one last thing okay all right uh, going back to the rake, going through the foot. Yeah. Have you ever had a rake go through your foot? I've not, but that's my question. What was the worst injury or accident you had as a, as a kid? Well, when I was in seventh grade, so 12, 13, something like that. Okay. Yeah. Back in like 1754. Right. Cause I'm as old as Perks the Porter. We lived in Idaho and Idaho had lots of places. Is that one of the 47 countries? We're going to have a geography lesson, just the two of us after this. Okay. I love it. Yeah. But in Idaho... Geography is kind of like math, right? Yeah. Okay. Great. I'm good at math. Yes. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) So, (laughs) any other weird questions before I continue? Uh, No. I'm... I'm, Yeah. Go on. Okay. So, in Idaho, there were lots of places to go dirt biking and mountain biking and things like that. And there was this one park that had this really steep hill and people would ride down it and go really fast. And I tried to do that. But I... Probably wasn't quite old enough to be doing that. And you were on a bicycle and or a skateboard? A, or I was on a bicycle. Okay. And I, it was a Unicycle? dirt hill. I was on a bicycle with two wheels. Two wheels. Yeah, regular Bi- old bicycle. Bicycle. Okay. Yeah, a bicycle. And yeah, yeah, I was like, what's the word? Oh yeah, bicycle. <laughs> and I hit, a, I hit a, there was like, they, they had these things that people as they were hiking up could put their feet on, you know, every 10 feet or something. And I hit one of those and I went flying through the air and I went over the handlebars and I landed on my face and I skidded down the hill about 10, 15 feet on my face. You're going fast? I was going fast. I bet yeah. you skidded farther than that. I mean, probably. I don't, 10, I guess 10 I don't. Yards. I guess I don't really remember. So you hit like a, 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 a step made out of the, like yeah, an like earthen a, step? Yeah. Well, no, it was made out of wood. Oh. And I didn't see it. It was like, you know how sometimes they're like partly buried on hiking trails and stuff yeah, like that? Yeah, like so a, I was going down and it was Like dirt, a railroad tie. Like a railroad tie, yeah. Yeah. And the railroad bandit put it there <laughs> and sabotaged me. And I went flying over the handlebars and I landed on my face and I skidded down and I was tore up the skin on my face. Oh, my eye was all swollen and nasty. And it was pretty. So gruesome. you were trying to what emulate, you? you were trying to emulate the other children that you saw going f- speeding down there. Yeah. Right. And a lot of them probably were had more information than you probably knew about these railroad ties. Correct. Yes. Yeah. And, and you're like, you weren't emulating um, the railway children and no. their kindnesses, you're you're emulating like Evil Knievel. <laughs> yeah, right, right. And these daredevil I don't children. know how many kids who are listening know who Evil Knievel well, is. look but, him up too. Yeah, exactly. Talk That's to your parents about that one. Yeah. What about you? Uh, worst injuries? Yeah. Uh, so I had a, a lot as a kid. I broke my arm 
jumping on the couch, fell into my the coffee table, broke my arm. My worst one, I don't even know if I should talk about it. It's pretty gross. Uh, <laughs> but I brought it up, so I will. Um, you asked a question. So I, I had to get stitches in the back of my throat um, when I was like six. So it, you say what now? Stitches in the back of my throat because um, there was a metal curtain rod and I was playing it like a flute or like an oboe or a clarinet, like pretending it was a musical instrument. And I tripped and it went into my mouth. Wow. Yeah, it was gross. When I, when I was like three, I was climbing up the stairs on my hands and knees. You know how like, like an animal, I was pretending to be an animal. Like a child. Right. Yeah. And I tripped and I fell and I hit my chin and I bit through my tongue. No, you did not. Yeah. I bit through my lip. Oh yeah. I couldn't talk for like three weeks. Yeah. I don't know if it was actually three weeks, but for a while. Yeah, that's okay. We just we just bonded again over injuries. Well, enough of the gruesome stories. We probably should move on to our conversation with Mary Rose Wood. I don't know that she would totally appreciate us telling gruesome stories as the lead in to our conversation with her. Let me tell you, it was a delightful conversation. She is a lot of fun. Mm -hmm. She is best known as the author of the incorrigible children of Ashton Place, the acclaimed middle grade series about a teenage governess and her three raised by wolves pupils. Raised by wolves pupils. So these these kids that were raised by wolves and they got adopted by a governess. So if that doesn't, you know, make you want to read the books, then I don't know what possibly could. Read these books. They have uh, six books in that series and they're super well regarded. Uh, They've been on all kinds of lists. Uh, She also has seven novels for young adults and a bunch of essays and uh, short stories, which appear in a book called Recycle This Book. But Graham, do you know how she started her career? How she started her career? Yeah, in the arts. Oh, in the arts. So probably something different than writing? We didn't talk about this in the interview. Paper mache sculpting. That is a wonderful guess, but it's not correct. Okay. She started her career in the theater. In fact, she was in the original Broadway cast of Merrily We Roll Along. That's pretty cool. Yeah. She was on Broadway. So she studied acting and film and television writing at NYU. That's the New York University. And she's done all kinds of things in theater and on the stage. And she also is uh, on the faculty of the Stony Brook Children's Literature Fellows Program. Yeah. So she has all the bona fides. And she's best known for paper mache sculpture. Is that right? Um, we're going to start that rumor. You heard it first here on Withy Windle. That, that's what she's most famous for. But actually, she's most famous, f- at least among you know, people that listen to this podcast for her series, The Incorrigible Children of Ashton Place. Yeah. So in just a second, we're going to turn it over to that conversation, which we really enjoyed. But first, we need to remind people about 23 years in 47 countries. How many countries do you think you could name in the next five seconds? Ready, a lot. set, go. Canada, Mexico, uh, uh, Switzerland, uh, <laughs> Finland, Iceland. I'm going to go through the lands. Swedenland, uh, USA land. Uh, okay. Now let's go through the foods. Uh, Turkey, <laughs> Hungary. Uh, okay. Now let's go just randomly through Europe. Let's go uh, sh- India, Kazakhstan, Nepal, <laughs> India. I'm oh, sorry. Europe. I meant Asia. I meant Asia. All right. We need the class. We need yeah, to, exactly. to teach me. We, okay. We're going to do some geography after this. But Greece. don't forget that if your family is interested in homeschooling, Classical Conversations is there for you. For the last 23 years and in, in over 47 countries, they have been equipping parents with the tools and confidence to teach kids at home. So if you're interested in homeschooling, you can partner with other homeschool parents and find your local community at classicalconversations.com slash withywindle. Again, that is classicalconversations.com slash withywindle. And with that, here's Mary Rose Wood. Well, we are here with Mary Rose Wood and... We're excited to be here with Mary. Very Rosewood. excited. 
Mary Rose, thank you so much for joining Withy Wendell. I am excited to be here with you. Thank you so much for having me. Well, we have a slew of questions mm -hmm. from younger. Is that a good is that a word to describe? I think slew is an actual mathematical term. Oh, well, it's let's like, not go with that then. It's more <laughs> than a few. It's more than several. It's a slew. It's a yeah. good one. Yeah, I think yeah. it works. Okay. So uh, we've got a bunch of questions from, from listeners uh, from your from your readers of all ages, and then of course we have some questions of our own. But we have to start with a very important first question. This is probably the most important question of all. This is a question we ask all of our guests because Devin sent it in in the first episode, and we've just stuck with it ever since then. Are you ready for the most important question you're going to get? In I'm on tenter hooks. Maybe all year. Maybe all year. Yeah. yeah. Which do you prefer, Cheetos or Doritos? Oh, that is really rough. You know, listen, <laughs> am, I, am I going to start out betraying, you know, how uninteresting I am if I confess that I actually don't eat that kind of stuff? Uh, but I, I so I have to really think back. I have to think <laughs> back to when Cheetos and Doritos were considered a food group and uh, in my life. Yeah, I'm, not yeah. I'm not throwing shade on anybody here. You know, we all make our choices. Yeah. All the nine-year-olds that are listening. <laughs> all the nine-year-olds that are listening. You know, the things that you can do, your nine-year-old body can deal with. You know, sometimes when you get a little older, it's you start to be more discerning about what you put in because, you know, you yeah. really got to take, it's like a, it's like a vintage machine. You know, you really have to put the right kind of fuel in it or it's not going to run. So, um, but I have to say uh, Cheetos would be the clear favorite for me between okay. those two. Well, it's interesting because we find that young, that kids as they're good, they like to get to know the habits of their favorite authors and mainly they like to know things about food. So we've got a couple of <laughs> food questions. We're going to throw at you kind of rapid fire. So you're, you're not a Doritos or Cheetos person. What, what about a uh, coffee or tea? Yeah. I drink both, but totally coffee. Mm. So if you had to choose, it'd be coffee. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Coffee is a daily thing. Are it's you, part I, of my writing process. Um, okay. And I'm kind of a snob about it too. I mean, snob. I like a good cup of coffee. Okay. I like a flavorful, bold cup of coffee. <laughs> so do you put anything in it or is it you drink in a black? I, I, I have a kind of a continental approach to my coffee, which is that in the morning I'll have a cappuccino with an, some sort of non-dairy, uh, it's usually almond milk. Okay. But then for the rest of the day, I'll drink it black. Okay. So you are, you are in the beans over leaf corner. Totally. And that whole beans only. When I mm. say snob, I'm saying I get my whole beans. I put them in the grinder. I grind <laughs> what I need for that cup. I get the water to the right temperature in the kettle that has a little temperature gauge on it. I mm -hmm. pour it over. It's a good cup of coffee. You are one step away from growing your own beans is what you're saying. Well, one step uh, maybe three steps. Three I mean, steps, okay. I'm not sure I've got a good, I have actually visited a coffee plantation. I was on holiday in Hawaii oh, wow. a couple of years ago. And it was one of the first things on my to-do list. I was like, hey guys, <laughs> let's go to the coffee plantation. <laughs> and they were like, don't you want to go to a volcano or a beach? I'm like, no, I want to go <laughs> I, to the we, coffee there, We have priorities and they're art forms. <laughs> <laughs> so are you a cake or a cookies person? If you eat Ooh. sweet stuff. Cookies, cookies. Mm. Are you sweet or savory? In the general, the cookie. No, not I, just in general. Okay. Not not cookies. 
Listen, I, I uh, let me ex- let me go a little deeper into this question. There's more to this than it meets the eye because <laughs> cakes and cookies. One of the reasons that I prefer cookies is that a cookie ca- actually can be kind of savory. Mm. Think about it's, you know a rosemary biscotti or something like that. You know, think about or I just recently made for a friend who um, who needed a non dairy dessert. I made olive oil brownies. Mm. And they were magnificent. So it was like kind of bittersweet chocolate, mm. olive oil, a little bit of flaked salt on top. Do you see where I'm going with yes, this? Yes. It's not an either or situation with the sweets and the savory. So you talked about your writing process. A lot of there's stories over the years of different writers and what they like to snack on while they write. Um, Flannery O'Connor famously ate crackers while she wrote. Do you have a particular thing that say you're you're up against a deadline or you're having a tough moment in a story that you that you turn to to help you get through those those pages you mean in terms of eating my feelings you're asking me what i eat when i, I eat my I mean, feelings yeah i i didn't want to put it that way but yeah I, I i really try not to do that but in an absolute emergency dark chocolate mm. would be my choice she has very refined taste. Mm-hmm. I agree. Do you have refined literary taste too? Maybe we should hold that question and talk about it later. Well, we want to know, first off, what does the word incorrigible mean? And if you were an incorrigible child yourself? Oh, that's these are excellent questions. Excellent. <laughs> and it's a two-parter. So you're right. we're just going right into the deep end of the pool with a two-part that's right. question. That's All right. right. We're going to make you have um, to keep track of them. (laughs) Oh, good. Um, So I'm going to nerd out a little bit on etymology, right? So incorrigible is a word like so many fine words in the English language. It's made of Latin roots. So we have in, which means not, and corrigible, which many of my readers have assumed has to do with the idea of being encouraged. But Mm. it's not. It actually has to do with the idea of being corrected, Two very different things. Hmm. So an incorrigible person is not able to be corrected, incapable of being corrected. <laughs> so um, so that's the, the so it sort of means uh, unteachable or untrainable. Hmm. So that's what incorrigible means. Now, am, was I or am I an incorrigible person? <laughs> uh, that's a very interesting. Now that I've defined it, uh, <laughs> let me think about my answer. I, I love to learn. I actually love to learn. I'm mm. always interested in learning new things. I am incorrigibly curious. I'm curious and you can't make me not be. So that's what that means. Um, but I'm also stubborn. I will cop to that. And I think I've always had that quality of just having an idea of what I wanted to do and not seeing any reason not to do it. And maybe not noticing if the people around me were rolling their eyes at it because I had become so obsessed or, you know, single focused on something. Um, so that's a touch of being incorrigible. But you can be incorrigible about positive traits as well. It's just that no one can turn you from them. Mm-hmm. No one can turn you away from the thing. So you can be uh, incorrigibly cheerful. <laughs> no one can. Right. Right. So you can use that word in different ways. So it doesn't always have this kind of negative definition or meaning. You can flip it It to a positive. It needn't. There's a tradition of calling children incorrigible when they are naughty because you're saying that they they can't be corrected. Nothing you can say will make these children behave. Mm. Um, But that's not the only way to use the word. It's probably the one that's most familiar, though. 
Well, so, so this brings us to, to your series. Can you give us the, what some people might call the Hollywood summary, the Hollywood version of your stories and just kind of give, for some of, the, some of our listeners will have read them. Most of them will have read them, but some won't. So without giving too much away, can you kind of give us the two sentence summary of what your books are about? And then we'll dive into some questions about the books more specifically. I'll do my best. I'll do my best. Um, I did live in Hollywood for a couple of years, but I don't know if I really got the knack of that two sentence <laughs> summary. I actually think you're supposed to do like, you know, uh, as one review said, Jane Eyre meets Lemony Snicket. Yeah. You know, like you're supposed to do a mashup in order to be truly Hollywood. But I'm not sure that tells people what you want them to know. So uh, <laughs> here's here's my uh, however many sentences it is, super quick introduction. Okay. The series the series is called The Incorrigible Children of Ashton Place. It's actually a six book series. And it tells the story of Miss Penelope Lumley, who is 15 years old at the beginning of the series and who is hired to be the governess to three children at the extremely lavish estate of the wealthy Ashton family. Only after she takes the job does she discover the three children were actually raised by wolves. So they were found running in the forest and it's her job to tame them. Um, uh, as she does so, a lot of mysteries surface because who are these kids who were left in the woods by whom and why and uh what relationship if any uh has brought her and these children together in this particular grand house uh so that's the that's the premise of the series the mysteries certainly do thicken as it goes on which is why it takes six books to solve and i should say it's uh, if it's not obvious for my summary it's not set in the present day <laughs> All of it takes place in the Victorian era in England, uh, which was a great part of the joy of writing them. Hmm. All right. So the next question is, comes from Astrid, and she's wondering what inspired you to make these stories? And she says they are so inventive and clever. Yeah. So she got a question and, and a review in there. And a you. review. Yep. Oh, and see, and I get a question and a compliment. Thank you, <clears throat> That's Astrid. Right. You're yeah. just you're the sweetest. Thank you. You are Swanburn through and through. <laughs> Swanburn Swanburn Academy is the name of the school uh, that Miss Penelope only received her education at. So when we say someone is Swanburn through and through, that is a great compliment. <laughs> so I would say the inspiration for this series came from a few different places, as inspirations tend to do. One of my very very favorite books in my life, and one that I probably read for the first time when I was about 12 or 13, is Jane Eyre, which is a, a classic novel whose main character is a governess. And this is a book that I read cover to cover so more times than I could possibly count. And I usually still reread it about once a year. And like so many writers, I think that my inspiration often comes from stories that have moved me because mm -hmm. I get an impulse to say, oh, I'd like to go into that world. I'd like to do something like that. It's It, it inspires my imagination because I love it so much. And so I thought it would be great fun to write a governess novel, a, a mm -hmm. character who was a governess. However, there are no children raised by wolves in Jane Eyre. It's, yeah. it's, it's much more straight laced than that. <laughs> there are things in it that are spooky. It depends on if you think Brocklehurst is a wolf. 
Well, true, true, true. (laughs) I also was inspired by my lifelong love of animals and particularly um, animal stories. I love animal stories. And since writing Incorrigible Children, I have written an animal story that was also very much on my to-do list as a writer to, to write an animal story. But my son, who was young, I guess at the time that this idea was being born in my imagination. And he was a huge fan of the Curious George books, which I imagine you guys know. Oh, yeah. and, mm-hmm. and one of the, th- and I used to read them to him over and over again. And one of the things that we both loved about Curious George was this quality that George, who is a monkey in the books, he has this quality of, he's a monkey, but he's sort of like a child at the same time. And so the stories take you on this interesting exploration of George trying to behave like a child, right? He's treated like a child. He has a human caretaker. But his nature, his wild nature, almost always explodes. He he gets carried away by something and he goes monkey wild, you know, he does some kind of crazy thing. It's usually pretty destructive or makes a huge mess. And at the end of the story, they, they pretty much all end the same way, where his misdeeds are discovered and he is forgiven. And there's this sense of, look, he's only a little monkey after all. You know, what do you expect? And I just loved what consolation that was to a small child. I think it must be part of the appeal of those books that Hmm. small children don't have much experience and they make mistakes all the time and they make messes all the time. They don't always get it right. And Hmm. I think it's such an important message for a kid to know that you're a kid. It's okay to be a kid, you know, do Hmm. the best you can, but no one's expecting perfection. You'll always be forgiven. It's all right. Hmm. So I love that idea of the character who was a human character, but a little bit like an animal or an animal character, a little bit like a human. And the old saying, uh, children who've been raised by wolves. And of course, there's a lot of mythology, a lot of fables about children who actually were raised by wolves. um, Kind of came to me one day that it would be so fun to put those two ideas together. You know, this very proper Victorian (laughs) British governess and children who behave like animals. What can I say? How long did it take you to write the series? And then we've got some questions about how you landed on um, some of the characters that you chose. Oh, absolutely. Well, how long did it take me to write? The whole series is six books. And I think it was probably close to nine or 10 years of writing to get the whole series done. Each of the books uh, in the beginning, I would say took 10 months to a year, but um, as is often the case with a series, the more um, elaborate the world of the books has grown, Mm. the more secondary characters you've introduced, the more plots and subplots and side plots and, you know, things, they get longer. The books get a little more complicated. I think if you look on your shelf at any series, you can see how the later ones get thicker and thicker. (laughs) Yeah. And that happened with the incorrigible children as well. So that Mm. the last book in the series is, it's not twice as long as the first book, but it's almost twice as long as the first Mm. book. So the last few took longer to write. Okay. So Lily, who is nine, she wants to know why you chose specifically a dog or a wolf for them to have grown up with and to sort of act like, um, and you know, that is a minor spoiler, I suppose, but you did, you did reveal that in your description. So, (laughs) well, the fact that the children are raised by wolves is, uh, 
It's important to know. It's hard to talk about those books without revealing this. Right. <laughs> because there's so much barking and howling that goes on. Why do, Why does Miss Lovely have to teach them to eat cooked food and stop chasing squirrels? I mean, these are not normal plot developments in a governess novel. That's true. <laughs> Um, but I chose wolves for the vi- for the very reason um, that uh, I, I that the the language sort of gives us these idioms, right? These mm. phrases that are familiar. Mm. Uh, children so naughty they must have been raised by wolves. That might not be a saying that gets said as much now as it did yeah. when I was yeah. young, but it's a familiar idiom, and I. Love to play what if. I think that's one of the things that writers do. And so when you hear that phrase, it's very amusing to imagine, well, what if they were? What if they were literally, truly raised by wolves? What would they be like? Now, I've had dogs most of my adult life. I don't happen to have one now because my most recent pup crossed the Rainbow Bridge about a a year and a half ago. Hmm. And I I haven't yet made the commitment to a new one, but um, I, so I lived, I've lived with dogs a lot, decades living with dogs. And so I'm, I was fascinated by dogs behavior as well. So it seemed like a fun thing to explore, you know, uh, children raised by wolves would act like puppies Mm. and what could be cuter than that. Did you have Mowgli in mind at all from the jungle book? Well, you know, it's it, that's a great connection. So the Jungle Book, of course, has this wonderful plot where a human child is sent to be raised by animals and has to ultimately make a decision about where he truly belongs um, because he is human and they are animals. And uh, as I'm sure some of your readers know, the wonderful writer Neil Gaiman actually wrote a terrific and very popular middle grade novel called The Graveyard Book that takes the premise of The Jungle Book and turns it on its head by saying, okay, what if instead of children, a child being left to be raised by animals in a jungle, what if a child was left in a graveyard to be raised by the ghosts? (laughs) It's such an incredible premise and he does a magnificent job of it. And the book is a very close homage to the Jungle Book. Mm. What was a little different for me in The Incorrigible Children of Ashton Place was that the children are children, right? They are are children who we, we only meet them after they've come back to live among other humans. And so what's interesting is to watch them adapt and adapt quickly, right? To the the very different ways of living in a very fancy house. But we also get to watch how they are perceived by other humans and the differences in how they're perceived. It's part of the, I think it's part of the heart of the book is that um, because they don't behave perfectly at first, uh, the Lord and Lady Ashton, particularly Lady Ashton, doesn't uh, has a hard time actually accepting them as children, but that's what they are. This isn't a curious George situation, right? Like they are children. And uh, we get to explore a little bit of the idea of perspective, you know, how people see each other and what mm. judgments they might place upon each other um, mm. until they get to know each other better. Mm. So Judah, uh, who's age 10, wants to know if there were any other title options before you landed 
on the incorrigible children of Ashton Place? I really like this question. Kind of gives us a peek behind the scenes of the whole publishing and writing process. It, it totally does. Judah, that's a very professional question. I have a feeling that Judah may grow up to be an agent or an editor or something. It's very often the case. It's a very good question because it is very often the case that a book will have a title. And then once it has a publisher, uh, uh, there may be discussions about whether that's the best title for the book. And it doesn't mean that the first title was bad or, or, you know, it just sometimes means that there's concerns about the title really communicating very quickly um, what kind of book it is and intriguing the reader and, and wanting to get them interested in it. Um, I have to say in the case of the incorrigibles, this, the title of the series, as I conceived it before I even found my publisher, was always the incorrigible children of Ashton Place. That's mm. always what it was. And it was never, we never considered changing it. Mm. What was, uh, became a challenge for me as I wrote the books was coming up with six titles that all sounded like they went together. Yes. <laughs> uh, because sometimes, you know, we don't think of this in advance, and I didn't know I was going to write six of them when I wrote the first one. I thought mm. I was going to write a couple of them, but I didn't know exactly how many. Yeah. And so I, the first one was called The Mysterious Howling, and that felt fine. But then the other titles had to kind of have the same feeling. And so mm. I, I found myself, uh, as I found titles for the other five books, with the challenge of like, okay, well, what would, fa- what would follow The Mysterious Howling, you know? Mm. Did the title come to you early on in your writing or even before the story itself? Or was that something that that was later on when you were getting closer to finishing the book? I, I'm pretty sure it was, it's been a while since I wrote it, but I'm pretty sure that I had that title right away. Hmm. I don't remember there being any title discussions about any of them, honestly. Hmm. And it's, they, a very, and they, it's a very sticky title. Like it stays with you. Yeah. I think it's kind of perfect. Oh, well, thank you. And the other ones, of course, start like follow the same kind of cadence. Like there's the hidden gallery and the unseen guest and the unmapped sea mm-hmm. and the, the the interrupted tale and the long lost home. So you can hear those titles all have an intention to sort of sound like they're of the same family. They all have a line of mystery going through them. Which they all, they're very clever. They have interrupted, unseen, long lost, hidden are the operative words in all of the titles. That was part of the project was to come up with titles that would have that feeling. So that brings me to a question that we got from Clara way back before our first episode. And it was a good question. So we ask it of every author and, I'm especially curious about this question because you have these mysteries kind of embedded in the stories. And she wanted to know, she's 11. She wants to know if when you wrote your stories, you planned it all out ahead of time, like you planned all the plot ahead of time, or if you kind of figured it out as you went and kind of just kind of let your gut take you where it went. Of course, there's the first book factor, and then there's also the whole series factor. So some people say, well, I had the, I knew how the last book was going to end, but I wasn't sure how to get there in the meantime. So how did you think about plotting both the individual book and then the whole series? This is from Clara. Cla- Clara. Clara is, we have another future publishing industry professional in our midst. <laughs> thank, thank you for this very good question. It, a, a lot of writers get asked this and I, I'm, I'm delighted to answer it. And, but I also know that the, the very wise person who asked a question like this is probably 
secretly or not so secretly a writer themselves. And so I just want to say, Clara, that if you sometimes wonder, or if anybody listening to this wonders, do professional writers know everything that they're going to write (laughs) down before they write it down? That is not the case. And the sort of process of writing, it's what I call a messy mud pie. (laughs) We're much more like painters than it seems on the surface because we have to experiment and we have to sketch Mm. and we have to play around with things. We have to observe, you know, you wouldn't be surprised probably if you went into a painter's studio and you saw a mess of paint on the floor and the walls and dirty smocks and dirty brushes. And you probably wouldn't be surprised if they had sketchbooks of all the different things that are going to end up in the painting. This is what the eyes might look like. This is what the smile might look like. This is what Mm. the character of the little dog in the corner might look like, you know, you'd sketch and sketch and sketch and really work things out. And then eventually it would get rendered into a finished painting. You can see all those things, right? What you can't see as easily is in a writer's head, all of that mess, right? Because it's in somebody's head and you can't get, you don't get to see inside it. Yeah. But we go through the exact same process. Hmm. Um, We might experiment, we might write, things different ways. We might try to figure out who's telling the story. What's the point of view? We might try lots of different things before we decide on the one we're going to go with. So you have no, Oh, sorry. Sorry. Go ahead. Oh, you have to forgive me. Right. Cause I do actually teach writing and I, so I can go on about this topic without interruption for a long time, but this (laughs) is more of a conversation. So please feel free. I I was just going to ask if, as a, if you have, you know, notebooks and notebooks that you're constantly filling with sketches and notes and ideas and things like that, that, and, and maybe even notebooks from before the incorrigible children books became books where there were just ideas. Do you, do you look, do you have things like that that you can look back at? I have some pretty old files of, of stuff that I was thinking about um, when I was sort of developing the idea of the incorrigibles. Um, two things come to mind. And I do want to finish answering Clara's question about like kind of how to approach that knowing, yeah, yeah. not knowing, like when you sit down to work, because I just think everyone wants to know the answer to that question. But the two things that come to mind from my messy artist studio in my brain are um, that I actually started to write the book in the first person, which means that it was narrated by the main character, in this case, Miss Penelope Lumley. So I actually wrote a couple of chapters uh, that were narrated by Penelope. Anybody who's read the books knows that Penelope is not the narrator of the books, that they are instead narrated by a a third person narrator, an an outside voice that tells the story to the reader and adds a lot of commentary as well. A lot of digressions, <laughs> if you will, little funny asides and things. But I didn't know that at first. That was something I had to discover by trying it a few different ways. So that was mm. one example. And then another example is when I when I really wanted to understand what the mystery was, the, the children, you know, the who are these children who left them in the world and why, I felt that even though it wouldn't be possible for me to work out every single detail of how Mm. that mystery was solved. I should at least know what the answer was right before I started to write too much. Right. And, um, and so I gave myself (laughs) a little writing prompt 
And I invented a character. No one's ever seen this, by the way, except I think I showed it to my editor in HarperCollins, the wonderful Donna Bray, that I invented a character who was a college professor, a lecturer, who was the world's leading expert on the strange case of the incorrigible children of Ashton Place. And this lecturer was going to give a talk at a conference all about the incorrigible children of Ashton Place and was going to stand at the podium and tell, you know, the story of the mystery. And I just improvised the lecture on paper, you know, I just sort of made it up as a lark, as a game. And I have to tell you that 10 years later, almost everything that ended up being the big reveals of this long, complicated mystery, I drew from that lecture. Oh, that's awesome. (laughs) Yeah, thank you. So it was, it's funny in hindsight, you know, sometimes we just have to kind of go sideways into something to solve it. But you don't, so you don't have to know what uh, everything is beforehand, but you do have to have an idea of what the shape of a story is. Mm. And that's how I would approach this with a writer of any age. It's the same thing I teach my, you know, serious professional adult students that I coach is if you know what the shape of a story is, you can make up a lot of things without getting lost or without feeling that you don't know where you're going because all stories have more or less the same shape. They have a beginning, they have a middle and they have an end. And in the beginning, we meet a main character, our hero who has some sort of problem and that problem is going to be solved. And before the beginning is over, our main character goes on some kind of quest, mission or adventure in pursuit of a solution to the problem that they think they have. And the second act, the middle, I say act because we also call it three act structure, beginning, middle and end are also called first, second and third acts. In the second act, our hero goes through lots of trials and tribulations on their mission, on their way to accomplish the thing that they're set out to accomplish. And they get to the the very end of the second act, which is actually most of the book, or most of the story, it doesn't matter what length, it's more than half of the length of whatever tale you're telling is the second act of the hero going through trials and tribulations, uh, you know, meeting obstacles and challenges and going through them. And they get to the end and they think they're about to solve their problem. And then something really surprising happens and it doesn't go the way they expect. And Hmm. some new situation comes up. And now they've got to take everything that they've learned so far to solve this new situation. And that's the third act. That's the ending. There's a lot more to say about that, (laughs) but that's the shape of a story. And if you think about the stories you love, you're going to see that that's what it is over and over and over again. Well, I think we'll have some more questions about advice for young writers as we get to the end of this conversation. But I think Graham's got one that came from us, which is a reader. Uh, Yeah, so Sam, who's 11, wants to know why you decided to set the story in Europe. And then we got another question that might tie into this. Um, How much do you think of this as a kid's gothic novel? And that's from that's from a mom, an old, uh, a mom who's listening, right? Yeah, Lily's mom. Lily's mom. Yeah, <laughs> Lily's mom. Very good. All right. So we've got two. We've got a kid version and a grown-up version of pretty much the same question, right? <laughs> so I love it. That's so insightful on both ends. Um, I chose to set it in England because I was inspired by a tradition of British Gothic novel. There is this sort of family of books, if you will, some of them written by people who were a family in real life, the Bronte sisters, um, 
who these kinds of stories were all written um, in the pre-Victorian and early, early Victorian times. And they often involve somebody with um, maybe an unfortunate background, an orphan or someone we don't know who their parents are, somebody who right who is, doesn't have a lot of money. And they find themselves in confronting people of a very different social class, people, mm-hmm. very wealthy people, people with a lot of money. Often there's a kind of a grand house, a mysterious house full of secrets that serves as kind of a setting for these tales. It, this is a this is a kind of book that there are many examples of, and it's called Gothic. And uh, I don't know why it's called Gothic, but it, it they tend to have a, a quality of mystery about them. And even I'm sure our kid readers out there might be familiar with the American Gothic poet and fiction writer Edgar Allan Poe. So you can see that that strain did not stay in England for sure, right? That there are American examples of people writing in the Gothic mode. But the book that inspired me particularly, as I mentioned, was Jane Eyre. And so I, it just, I just wanted to set it there. It just seemed right for the, for the book. Um, and I guess I'm answering Lily's mom's question as well, is that I, I, it's not that one gets up in the morning and says, you know what I'm going to do today? I'm going to write an, a Gothic middle grade novel, you know, inspired by Victorian British literature. I'm a 21st century American writer. How does it all make sense? You don't get up in the morning and say that, but we writers sit down to work and we, we kind of open up our little suitcase of influences and mm-hmm. ideas and things that we're curious about. And that's what we have to work with. You know, we have our bag of tricks and we have to draw from the things that inspire us because it does take a long time to write a book. I mean, if you're going to have an idea for a book, you can't just be that you're going to be interested in until lunchtime. You're going to have to stick with that book for a while. (laughs) So it's best to write about things that really, really, really interest you. So we have a question here that came from the Cummings girls. And I like this one. They said, I mean, not that I didn't like the other ones too, but (laughs) I like this one too. Um, They said, how many Agatha Swinburne quotes are there? And did you come up with each of them as the context presented itself in the story? Or do you have a collection of quotes that you pull from as you're writing? (laughs) I love this question. Uh, First of all, uh, forgive me for correcting you. It is Agatha Swanburn. Oh, Swanburn. Yeah, sorry. I'm not going to blame anyone's penmanship. I know how hard it is to write neatly. I have trouble with it myself. Reading is hard. Well, yeah, it just takes practice. And That's you right. know, when you've got a book, we've got a bookstore to practice in. I, I think you're going to be fine. Yeah. Hopefully one but, day I'll be okay. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so for anybody who doesn't know, Agatha Swanburne, who does not appear in the books, by the way, she's not a character in Incorrigible Children of Ashton Plays books in the sense that she, she doesn't walk into a scene. She was the founder of the Swanburne Academy, which is where our hero, Miss Penelope Lumley, got her education. The Swanbird Academy is where she learned the traits of, you know, pluck, optimism, and good common sense that allow her to serve as such a warm-hearted governess to these three rather challenging children. And they also give her the, you know, the intellectual uh, keenness and curiosity to ultimately solve the mystery. Hmm. And of course, a lot of very good values as well. So Agatha Swanburne is kind of like the, you know, she's like the moral center of the books. And the, her 
opinions are collected in many, many, many sayings that are sprinkled throughout the entire series. And so let me answer your question. We did go through the entire series and collect them all and put them in a spreadsheet. And (laughs) there are about a hundred of them total. And um, some of them are, you know, more a pithy than the than others, but there's total, there's about a hundred of them. And I did not create them in advance because again, I, I do think in the shape of story, right? And one of the things that often happens in stories is that our hero gets into a predicament or meets a challenge that's really difficult and it's beyond what they know how to solve. And there's an archetypal figure in most stories called the mentor. And often a little visit from a mentor, whether literally or even in memory, can be just the thing that the hero needs to move forward. And so Mm. when I would put Penelope in a pickle, in a difficulty (laughs) in storytelling, where she really needed a bit of mentor energy to keep going, I could always rely on a saying of Agatha Swanburne to help her because she was educated at the Swanburne Academy and she knew them all. That Mm. was part of the curriculum, right? We could say. Yeah, yeah. And so I would invent the saying that Penelope needed to hear at the time. And that's how they came. Well, I think we have time for two more questions and then we got to do our word of the week. Do you have time for two more? Awesome. Totally. Okay. So should we do these two? These two questions? I like those two. Yeah. So you had mentioned you you, um, have a suitcase of influences (laughs) that you carry around with you. Do some of those go all the way back to your childhood? What books did you enjoy? specifically uh, as a child? Oh, absolutely. They go back to my childhood. There's no question. You've always been putting things in that suitcase? It's not a very big suitcase, I think. You're cramming them in. I'm not a very big person. There's only so much I can carry, (laughs) right? I can tell you a couple of books that were hugely influential on me. Um, And one of them is actually an anthology. And it's, um, I don't have it within arm's length. I sometimes do have it on my desk. It's it's one of, I don't know if they still publish them, but it's like the golden treasury of, oh, yeah. of children's literature or something like that. Mm-hmm. It's, um, it was, I, there was a copy of it that I had as a kid and it was, oh, Louis Untermeyer, I think is the editor. It was that series. We can look up the exact title of it in case anyone's curious. But I had a volume uh, you know, it's a big hardcover, lots of illustrations. I don't know, maybe 500 pages. And inside of it were tastes, if you will, of so many incredible sort of classic works of children's fiction and poetry. And it was in from this book that I first learned about Rudyard Kipling and his great short story that's still one of my favorites, Ricky Tiki Tavi. Mm-hmm. It's where I first learned about Lewis Carroll and Alice in Wonderland and Winnie the Pooh and um, <laughs> Poppins and like just a, it's like a treasure trove. And mm-hmm. as you can tell, even from what I've already mentioned, it has a kind of golden age of uh, children's literature mm-hmm. bent to it. It's a lot of British classic British children's literature. So you can see that it, that, and then later on, probably too much time watching Monty Python episodes, <laughs> um, 
uh, you know, influenced me to, to think it really fun to write things set in England. But this book yeah. also had poetry in it and had a lot of wonderful poetry. And anybody who's read The Incorrigibles knows that in each of the six books, there's a poem that tends to be part of the lesson plan for the incorrigible children that does end up playing some sort of role in the plot. In the first mm. book, of course, is The Wreck of the Hesperus, which there's an elaborate in which the children who've been studying the poem for a while uh, reenact it uh, at an inopportune. I don't want to spoil it for you, but much hilarity ensues. So <laughs> that that volume alone, I, I've been drawing from it ever since. It was such an mm. early influence. I absolutely loved um, Heidi when I was a kid. Absolutely loved Charlotte's Web. A Wrinkle in Time was a great favorite of mine. And then I got a little older, but still in my teens, discovered Jane Eyre. I mean, I was an avid reader, so I could list a lot of books. But mm. these are the ones that I remember feeling very shaped by. Mm. Yeah. Okay, so I've got a similar question. One of the questions we'd like to ask is, what advice you have for kids who want to be writers? And you got into that a little bit in your earlier questions. So let me, let me ask this question. Let me kind of... Sh- Combine those two questions, the one Graham asked and the question about advice for young writers. If, if a kid wants to be a writer, what book or author of middle grade fiction should they read specifically because you think that, that author can help them be a better writer? And you can't include your own. You can't include your own books. So what middle grade series or author do you think that young you know, kids who want to be writers should read because it can help them be a better writer? That that's such an uh, it's a difficult question in the sense that there are probably a number of people that I would name if I had time to think about it. But sure, I did. We did not I'm give you a chance to think ahead of time. <laughs> no, no, I'm, there's no thinking ahead. We're just we're we're just making it up as we go. That's, that's the way life right. is. But I think because I just mentioned it, it's top of mind. So that's what I'm going to recommend. I do believe that Charlotte's Web is just about a perfect book, mm. and. So much of what is excellent about Charlotte's Web is the quality of the expression of the actual writing. Mm. And um, on a sentence by sentence level, right, this is flawless writing in English. And so if somebody wants to develop a good ear for what writing can sound like, I would say that reading E.B. White is... um, a model that children and adults can equally benefit from. Uh, <laughs> this is uh, those of you who uh, have already grown up enough to be sent off to a freshman comp class know that one of the first books they're going to hand you in college is yeah. Strunk and White's The Elements of Style. That's the same guy who wrote the Char- Charlotte's Web. Okay. <laughs> Sometimes people don't realize that. Yeah. E.B. White is the white of Strunk and White. And so he's, he is always a masterclass in writing well, writing good English. Mm. But the mm. other thing that I would say, particularly to young writers is that, you know, think about storytelling as much as you think about writing, because our readers really come to us for a great story. And a great story is about a great character who has an incredible experience and is changed by it. And if you think about that, you will, you know, find that what 
sometimes looks like we're getting stuck, quote unquote, stuck, writer's block, all these things. I don't believe in them. Um, mm. We imagine that there's this like hose of words that and words flow out of the hose. Right. And that when the trickle, when it trickles and stops, that we have writer's block because the words are not flowing. But mm. writer's block or that feeling of being stuck has literally nothing to do with words. It has to do with story. It has to do with the fact that we've sort of lost track of where our story is going. We don't know what happens next. Mm. So you must remember that the storytelling, telling a good story is actually the writer's number one job. And then telling it beautifully is their other number one job. <laughs> They're both important, but yeah. uh, equally yeah. important. Mm. Well, we've got, got a word of the week and then we got to find out what you've got going on next in your writing and uh, anything else that you want to let us know about. But before we do that, before we let you go, then we got to do our word of the week. So Graham, mm -hmm. we're going to fire up the, the word disseminator. Yep. <laughs> uh, what, I don't know that we've ever called it that. And before, I have but. to tell you, okay, so I spent a lot of time making sure what the, the machine is going to, yep. It's okay. going to work great. I even brought it to the beach with me to give it a lot of vitamin D and, you know, nice sunlight okay. and relaxation. So see, here, here we go. You see, Mary Rose, we have this problem with this printer every time we try to get a word printed from it. So we've been trying every possible solution. And so far, Graham in particular has been unsuccessful. So this is a big moment to see if this, the, the vitamin D it, helps. Guys, I don't want to be negative, but it sounds like you bought a lemon. I, it, I think I this is the second one. Oh, oh, yeah. Well, anyway, let's, anyway put, let's spit it out. Let's okay. I don't think it worked. Well, so yeah, you, you, it didn't work. you brought it to the beach. Yeah, I, I tried to give it kind of a vacation, you know, or, or, you know, we put it through a lot. So. so there's something, one thing I hate about the beach, I might be rare in this, uh -huh. sand. I do not like sand. Did you consider the fact that maybe a printer that shoots words out probably won't like sand? That might explain all the sand that's coming out of it. <sighs> Oh, All right, we'll be, we'll be right back. I hate when there's sand in the printer. I, I hate I when know. that happens. It's just terrible for a writer. Well, we got to find a word a different way. We'll be right back. Okay, we're back. We've got a word. Okay. Mary Rose, are you ready to come up with or offer what you think this word means? Do you have a piece of paper and do you have a writing instrument? I do, and I'm ready. I'm ready okay. for this challenge. Okay, so here is what this this week's word is. It's... Winkle picker. W-I-N-K-L-E-P-I-C-K-E-R. What do you think winkle picker means? All right, well, we are back and we are ready to define winkle picker. Graham? Oh, how come I always have to go first? I don't know. That's just the way. It's just the show... The show, maybe there form. are rules. It's the structure. Okay. So, winkle picker. What is a winkle picker, Graham? A winkle picker is a mythical creature who has the specific bad habit of stealing your favorite pillow when you need it the most. That's a, that's a you know, very unfortunate. Is it a villain? I don't know if this is compulsory for him, <laughs> if this is in his nature, but when you go to lay down, lie down and, and you've got a couple pillows there, but your favorite one's missing. Mm. It was the winkle picker. And at the end of a long day. I don't know what he does with them either. Hoards them. Well, I don't know. It sounds plausible, but... Doesn't? You know, tell me about what you think. This, <laughs> tell me about this one. I think a winkle picker 
is the man who stood on the corner in a bowler hat and helped you choose the right parking spot for your horse and carriage. A winkle picker. Not bad. But Mary Rose, what do you think a winkle picker is? Well, listen, guys, I'm afraid I'm kind of a ringer here because I know what a, a, a winkle picker is. First of all, it's pronounced winkle picker. That's a common error. Um, again, I hate to correct you. So for, for we have to know what a winkle is. It's a kind of flower. It has great medicinal value. It's um, small uh, and white. It looks a lot like Edelweiss, actually. And it, in fact, it sort of grows in northern Europe hence the name Winkelpicker. It only blooms for one week a year and mm. it can only be harvested by hand. So the Winkelpickers are the people of the local town who volunteer to go and pick the Winkels every year. And it's actually, it's a great time of, of feasting and celebration and community. It's a beautiful week of Winkel picking. Do you think we should just say that that's the right one? I mean, it's not right, but should we say that that's the right one? I want to go to that, yes. We all want to be winkle pickers, don't that's, we? That's right. That's right. It's kind of like a metaphor for storytelling. Sounds so idyllic. So the reality is that while a funny word, it's nothing as special as any of these three things. A winkle picker, although I'm going to say winkle picker just because a winkle picker is actually, it's a style of shoe or boot that ha- has a very pointy toe, a sharp pointed toe. It's a shoe or boot with a sharp pointed toe, uh, commonly worn by British musicians in the 1950s, actually. <laughs> so I, I don't know. You're saying that that's the real definition, but I feel like there must be some association. Perhaps this was the type of shoe that the Winkle Pickers wore because the very, sharp, right. it very the well sharp could be. toe kind of helped them dig up the Winkles. It acted like a little miniature hoe, perhaps. That's, this is a, I feel like we have the seeds of a new story for you here. <laughs> Well, speaking of which, we'd love to know, what do you have going on in your writing life? What is next for you now that you've written six incorrigible children books? Well, I have um, actually published in, in September of 2020, the first book to follow on the Incorrigible Children of Ashton Place series. So it was a huge change for me to put the world of the Incorrigibles aside. Mm. My latest book is called Alice's Farm, A Rabbit's Tale. It is set in the United States. It's actually set up in a place that my friends on the East Coast will recognize as the Hudson Valley, Mm. which is an absolutely gorgeous area of New York State, not too far north of, of New York City, but it's a whole different world. It's a beautiful, verdant, you know, agricultural place. And Alice's Farm is a It is an animal story. There are humans in it and animals, but the main character, Alice, is an Eastern cottontail rabbit. And she takes on the significant challenge of having to save their farmland home from uh, the consequences of a very well-intended but not very competent, dare I say, family of hipsters from Brooklyn who take over, who take over. I'm reading this book right now. (laughs) There you go. Who, you know, gets tired of life in the big city and they're stressed out and they decide they're going to pack it all in and go buy a farm upstate and be organic farmers and just be cool and hip in that way. But they really don't know what they're doing. And they buy this farm that had been empty for a few years and they don't, know how to succeed at it. And so a local real estate developer quickly 
you know, realizes that this is an opportunity to get this farm away from them. Unless this farm succeeds and this family can succeed, the farm is going to end being ruined and all the animals who make it their home are going to lose their home. Mm. Alice, who is just a young little cottontail, is the one to figure this out. And she decides to rally help from all of the animals of the valley, which when you're a rabbit is pretty complicated, right? Because most of them are your predators. <laughs> True. So she's got to be extra brave and extra clever to figure out how to do this. And also to convince her fellow rabbits to do what no rabbit has ever done before, which is to help a farmer. Mm. Because rabbits and farmers, of course, as any fan of British children's literature exactly. knows, are mortal enemies. That's right. So Alice is really a remarkable rabbit. And she, there's a, just a ton of animal characters. The the pet Shiba Inu that the family brings with them from Brooklyn ends up becoming quite a central figure and has a, a profound interactions with the wild animals up in the Hudson Valley. There's uh, an American bald eagle who is named John Glenn for reasons that are revealed in the book. And um, he's an apex predator. And Alice, of course, is the very bottom of the predator food chain. So they find a way to work together. Mm. I had I had a great time writing this book. It's very dear to me and about themes that are really important to me about mm. pe people and animals working together, what it means to share responsibility for our home, this beautiful planet that we live on. Hmm. It's called what? One more time. So people can look it up. Yeah. It's called Alice's Farm, A Rabbit's Tale. Hmm. Well, should you be local, you can come pick that up here in Goldberry Books, but also I'm sure you can get it wherever books are sold in your neighborhood. So thank you so much for, well, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for your stories. I believe we have one more piece of business we have to do here, Graham, before oh. we let Mary Rose go. It's like, it's, it's policy. It's podcast policy. So Mary Rose, we need you to challenge someone else to come on to this podcast, um, to have the privilege <laughs> or punishment, depending on how you're looking at it, of chatting with us for an hour or so. And, and hearing from some great young listeners. Mm -hmm. So yeah, do you have a writer friend or someone you could challenge to, to endure this? You want me to, you want me to name someone right now? Yeah. Can you, can you throw someone, throw someone oh. out there that you think would have a good time maybe? Man, well, I'm Or has something to promote. <laughs> <laughs> I have, I have so many writer friends that it's hard to pick. Um, but I would love for you guys to spend some time with my dear friend, Emily Jenkin. I would okay. love, for you, I would love for you to spend some time with my other dear friend, Sarah Mlinovsky. I would love for you to spend time with uh, another dear friend, Sarah Zarn. I could go on mm -hmm. and on. I love that. We're getting like a whole suitcase. Full. Yeah. 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 Right. I, I, I could send you more and more. I, I just, uh, you know, I don't know how many names I could throw out without clearing <laughs> it with people first, but I, I can <laughs> send lots of folks your way. And I'm sure well, they would they, love we, to meet you guys because you're so fun. And this podcast is so great. Uh, well, thank you. We can always, they can always say no if they decide they don't want to yeah, come it's on. Yeah, fine. All you're doing is challenging them. So, you know, if they're, if they're cowards, then, you know, you know they're not yeah. brave enough. Oh, no cowards. <laughs> you have to be brave to be a writer. There are no cowards That's among true. them. That's true. That's true. Well, thank you for joining us and for being brave enough to write your stories and for sharing those with all the kids. We really appreciate you coming on. But more than that, we appreciate your stories that you're providing for all the children out there like 
like our children who uh, who love to read. So thank you so much. Oh, it's my pleasure. And thank you so much for keeping the, you know, the love of reading, not only alive and well, but giving it a home in a beautiful bookstore. It's, oh, well, it's a lot of work to run a bookstore, but it is a joyful path. And I know that you must be such a blessing to your community. And I want everyone to support you and make (laughs) sure that you thrive, just like the farmers have to thrive in order to keep the world the way we want it to be. Bookstores have to thrive. Well, that's very kind. Thank you so much. And again, thank you so much for being here. My pleasure. All right. Well, it is riddle time. Thank you so much to Mary Rosewood for coming on. And please do check her books out. They're wonderful. You can get them wherever you typically buy your books. But it is now time for that part of the show where we give the answer to last week's riddle and we give you a new riddle. Graham, last week's riddle was your riddle. Yeah, it was a tricky one. Do you have... Well, first of all, we probably should go ahead and just share that riddle again. Yep. A a man's walking alongside a river. A dog is on the his dog is on the other side, I guess, or a dog doesn't really matter. His dog is on the other side of the river. He wants it on his side. So he calls it, it comes across, but it does not get wet and it does not go over a bridge or on a raft or a barge. So the answer to this riddle is that the dog walked across the river, not because of some miraculous power, (laughs) although some might consider different states of water to be kind of miraculous because that's true. The water had changed to ice because it was winter. So the dog just, you know, walked right across to his master. So was this in Switzerland? This was in, yeah, Swedenland. Swedenland, yeah. So this one, this was kind of a tricky one. Did we get answers that were correct? Yes, not as many. Not as many. Uh, we got some creative answers. Um, a lot of a lot what of people was, What thought, was the best wrong answer we got? Oh, uh, I don't rem- I can't remember. But I know a couple... <laughs> flew. It flew across. Uh, uh, we got several answers that the river had run dry. Oh. And it was like a river bed. Mm. But we didn't say river bed. We said river. Yeah. And so, you, uh, did, you did imply that it, there was water in the river. Maybe. Yeah. 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 So it was frozen. It was frozen river. Mm. I like that one. Yeah. I don't Must know if it's... Must have been up in uh, I don't know if Manitoba. What, would you, what number would you give that riddle? Would you rate that riddle like we do our jokes? Mm, I think it's a pretty good riddle. Solid. 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 <laughs> Frozen solid. <laughs> <laughs> Puns are fun. Okay, uh, so it's my turn for this week's riddle. Are you ready to hear to hear this one? Let's go. Okay. Imagine imagine a woman. Okay. Let's say she's a writer. Yeah. And she is working on a story. Mm-hmm. And she needs to look up what a word is spelled like okay there's a book for that yeah oh a dictionary right (laughs) okay so she she goes to the dictionary and she looks up the word and to her chagrin it's spelled wrong okay and in the dictionary in the dictionary wow so then she thinks she's gonna look up in a different dictionary Mm -hmm. so she goes to another dictionary yep and it's spelled wrong there too Wow. So then she thinks, you know what? There's an authoritative dictionary. So she goes all the way back to like her oldest, the original dictionary. Yeah. In fact, did you know, side note, that my ancestors in Germany wrote either the German dictionary or the German encyclopedia? I don't know which it is. How, how would I know that? I don't know how you know that. I'm just, I'm telling you, I'm asking you that as like a rhetorical oh, question. Oh, that's just like, a phrase. Yeah, did like, you know? 
get this. This is an interesting thing about people that I've never met that were in my family 200 years ago. Okay. So, anyway, she goes to that authoritative German dictionary, which my family may or may not have written because it might have been the encyclopedia. And even in that dictionary, it's spelled wrong. In the dictionary? Yeah. Okay. So, here's the question. What word is spelled wrong in every dictionary? I love this one. What word is spelled wrong in every dictionary? That's the riddle for this week. Well, that was a really interesting riddle. And I, th- I think we're going to have some right answers and some wrong answers. Oh, yeah. Very, very interesting. Um, okay. So I guess that brings us finally to the end of this episode so I can go home. Yeah. You can go home and go to bed. Although, is that what you're uh, going to do? Quest- uh, I mean, the, uh, the bookstore troll is looking at me funny. I don't know if that means he's got more well, work for me to we'll do give him some tonight. Sour, uh, we'll give him some Sour Patch Kids and bribe him. You create a diversion. Got it. So I can escape. I'll create a diversion. You escape. And then you're stuck here. Then I'll give him the Sour Patch Kids and see what pests my luck. I love it when a plan comes together. <laughs> that was rapidly, rapidly came together too. Yeah. Yeah. So this has been a great episode. Thank you so much to everyone who's been listening. Wait, hold on. Do you have any final thoughts for the kids out there on um, this episode? My final thoughts are, we hope, well, I don't want to speak for you. I hope that they really enjoy getting to the sort of turning point of the railway children. And that they're enjoying all of the great writing advice from all the writers who have come on. If you're a young person who wants to be a writer, we have gotten a slew of great advice from these writers, which I'm even finding helpful. So hmm. um, I hope you're I hope you're finding it helpful. What about you? Do you have any final thoughts? I'm just I'm just not going to be able to stop thinking about that stuffed squirrel. You know, <laughs> like every time I'm in a doctor's office, that might be a question I ask them. Like, do you have any stuffed animals? They might think I'm asking for like a teddy bear. Yeah, though. right. Right. You might, maybe you need like, one to comfort you, you. Yeah. Do yeah. you need a comfort animal? Yeah. Maybe, yeah. No, no. Do you have any like actual do you squirrels? Yeah. And, and I'm pretty they're... sure they're all say no and I'll take notes and be like, see, it would this be, is not what doctors It would be do. pretty funny if your doctor was like, how dare you? I only have stuffed badgers. That would be amazing. That would be amazing. And if you want to get in touch with us, don't forget podcasts at goldberrybooks.com where you can send us your riddle answers, drawings of the machine, questions feedback, for, questions for us, feedback, yeah. uh, stuffed squirrels and snacks. Well, I guess I can't send stuffed squirrels or well, snacks. Well, we already know that they have to do that through the pigeons. Oh, yeah. Yeah. We expect pigeon to get... carrying a squirrel. Do you think that's they can do that? From what I can tell, pigeon can carry anything. Okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah. yeah. Squirrel. You oh, know. and and don't forget about the Instagram. We've got Goldberry underscore Studios. Yes. To check out our Instagram page, and season one is coming to the end. So you know, a couple of weeks. This is episode six. There's gonna be nine total episodes in this season. Mm-hmm. We're gonna be gearing up for episode two. So we or season two. So we really do want to hear from people about authors they would love to hear come oh, on the yeah, show that's great yeah so, so shoot us your emails or find us on social media and let us know about that we're going to have a Q&A episode at the end which will tell people how they can send in some questions for that so there's lots of great content coming in this season so we still have a third of the season to go but then we're gonna take a little break and have season two and we'll be gearing up for that uh later on this, this fall two. so yeah season two with the window strikes back with the window strikes back that's right yeah um so we're excited to be doing this and we really hope you like it please you know rate or review wherever you're getting podcasts if you use an app that allows you to do that we'd appreciate that um only five stars only five stars that's right well graham this has been fun thanks so much for for uh, coming in the uh, studio this was a really fun one yeah for graham Pittman, i'm david kern until next time Happy reading.